0: Hello. My name is Paul, and the Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 51, 1 and 2, and 10 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold
1: me with a willing spirit. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Stephen, and the New Testament reading is found in Romans 8, 9 through 17. But you are not self-centered. Instead, you are in the Spirit, if in fact God's Spirit lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to him. If Christ is in you, the Spirit is your life because of God's righteousness. But the body is dead because of sin. If the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also through his Spirit that lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation but it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the actions of the body, you will live. All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back into fe- again into fear. But you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The same Spirit agrees with our Spirit that we are God's children. But if we are children, we are also heirs. If we we are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, if we really suffer with Him, so that we can also be glorified with Him. The Word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Linda. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. Founded John. Fourteen, eighteen, at verses 25 to 27. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid the gospel of the lord. the
0: lord remain standing as we pray holy spirit we welcome you this morning we welcome you in our hearts we welcome you in this place we're asking that you would open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts we want to see jesus today we want to hear the word of god today and we want to be changed today. So do it, Lord, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're in week five of a series on the Nicene Creed, and the Nicene Creed was... was formalized, formally sort of put together in the year 325 A.D., and um, a council was held in a city called Nicaea. There were over 300 bishops that were convened to sort of formalize this now. To clear up a few misconceptions, they weren't writing this uh, from scratch. They weren't making this up in 325. In fact, many of these phrases, large sections, even outlines of the things that would end up being in the Creed were actually uh, around in earlier centuries. Justin Martyr and others developed what was called a rule of faith, kind of a a pattern of faith, a pattern for believing. It works very much the same way it does when you're teaching a child to write, and they're tracing the letters. And so a pattern of faith was kind of a way to teach the early Christians what it is that they believed. And they called this council together, um, mainly because as Christianity began to spread, there were other places where some teaching was arising that actually contradicted uh, Orthodox Christian doctrine. And they said, we need to formalize this in a confession so that everybody knows what we think. And some of you might be wondering, well, wasn't the Bible enough? Well, actually, they had these letters. They had the scriptures. But there were some teachers who were claiming to be reading the Bible only and yet arriving at some very different conclusions. They were arriving at some funny theories about who Jesus was, and so um, this, it went against what had been handed down from the apostles, and so the Council of Nicaea not only confirmed which books belong in the New Testament and which don't, but it also set... Um, in a formal fashion, what it is that Christians believe. And so the Creed works with the canon, works with the Scripture as a way to kind of keep us in bounds. It's sort of like those bumper lanes when you go bowling with kids or if you want the bumper lanes for yourself, just for fun. It keeps you from throwing a gutter ball. It keeps everything in bounds. And so the Creed works with our reading of Scripture as a way of saying... You can't read the Bible in such a way as to come up with different conclusions than this about the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Church, forgiveness of sins, and so on. Now, the great trap in doing a series like this is that we can all get our thinking caps on and take good notes, and all of a sudden we can subconsciously develop this, this way of thinking that says faith is kind of an intellectual achievement, Faith is about having the right way of thinking and, and checking all the boxes. And we have to be careful because especially in a series like this, it appeals to those of us who just want to know. Tell me all the things I need to do. Tell me all the things I need to think correctly. Tell me about the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. Tell me all the And I just want to make sure I check all the boxes. And... Somewhere along the way, we're starting to act as if faith were an intellectual achievement, and it is not. And so it's perfect that here we are in the series, working through the creed. Week one was about God the Father, the Almighty. Week two was about Jesus, who He is in relation to God, fully God. And then the week after that was Jesus, who He is in relation to humanity, fully human, and last week was Jesus, who He is in relation to the future of the world, the cosmos. We talked about His resurrection and His ascension and His reign, and here we are today, perfectly timed, talking about the Holy Spirit. And it's so important that we do this because it is this very paragraph here in the Creed that prevents us from making the mistake of turning the Christian faith into an intellectual achievement. Something that we just got to assent to. And, oh yeah, as long as I check these boxes, then I'm good. So, would you read this paragraph together with me as we say this together? We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. The first thing I want to say just from this stanza here in the Creed is that the Holy Spirit is the link between Christ and the church. If you recall last week, we talked about the risen Christ, the resurrection of Christ. We talked about the ascended Christ, which, re- remember, we said the ascension is about Jesus' enthronement, not about Jesus going home to uh, some intergalactic you know, planet or something. You know, It's him ta- ascending up to the throne. And then we said last week, we talked about the return, the coming again of Christ. Next week, we're about to talk about the church. And what it means to say we believe in one church. But see, this is where I think for so many of us, functionally, this is what we do in our Christian thinking, is we move from Jesus, oh, I love Jesus, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, oh, Jesus rose again, oh, Jesus is coming in. love Jesus, Jesus in my heart, love Jesus, 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 oh, and, and by the way, we should probably go to church and like evangelize and do stuff. And we jump right away from Jesus to church and we've skipped the Spirit. But I want to say to you that everything about the Christian life falls apart without the Holy Spirit. Everything about the the life of God in Christ that is available to you, it, it doesn't mean a thing without the Holy Spirit. In fact, we can't speak about the resurrection of Christ. And we said last week, the risen Christ means we get to share in his life. How? Through the Holy Spirit. If we don't talk about the Holy Spirit, the resurrection will just be a concept. It'll be something you want to prove, and it won't be a living reality. If we don't talk about the Holy Spirit, the reigning Jesus on the throne will just be a nice abstraction. Say, yeah, He reigns somewhere up there, and I'm supposed to share in His mission, but I don't really know how I can fulfill His mission, so, you know. It's the Holy Spirit who makes all of this come alive. You remember last week we talked about the story of the ascension in the book of Acts where it says the disciples, Jesus had just promised the disciples that they were going to receive power from on high and then it says that they saw him being taken up. Do you remember last week we said that story in Acts is meant to make us think about another story in the Bible, the story of Elijah and Elisha. Elisha was a servant to his master, Elijah, and he said, he asked of his master, he said, Master, I want a double portion of your anointing. I want to carry on speaking with the oracles of God. I want to bring these miracles into the land, into the people of God. And Elijah says, okay, listen, here's how you'll know that that's coming. Here's how you'll know that you've received that. If you see me being taken up, then you will know that you'll have the mantle. This is fulfilled by Jesus, promising his disciples, saying to them, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. It's good for you that I go. He says all this in John 14 and John 16, and he says, but I'm sending, I'm praying that the Father will send the Holy Spirit. And then Luke picks it up in the book of Acts, and he says, Jesus says to his disciples, wait, you're going to receive power. And then it says, and they saw him being taken up. As a way of saying, this was how they knew the power was coming. But the power wasn't coming as an impersonal force. The power was coming in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's the second thing we want to say. The Holy Spirit is equal with the Father and the Son. Now, the, the church fathers, the bishops who, who worked on this language in the creed, they do several things. They say several things to help us know that the Holy Spirit is equal with the Father and the Son. And the Son. The first thing they do is they use the phrase, the Lord. You recall here that the word, the Lord, is from the Greek word, Kyrios. That Greek word for Lord is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, a book called the Septuagint, whenever they, were, they saw the Hebrew letters Yahweh. They translated Yahweh as Kyrios, as Lord. And so this was a shorthand way of saying, the Holy Spirit is as much God as any of the other ones we've talked about. This is why they say we believe in one God, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, the Father. And then when they speak about Jesus, they say we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. That word Lord again. And then now for the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord. It's a way of saying we're not just talking about some kind of force or, or space between the Father and the Son. We're talking about the Lord. That the Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. The phrase the giver of life is also an important phrase. When the creed has spoken of God the Father and God the Son, it's, they've made a point to show him being outside of creation, right? What's the phrase when they are talking about the Father? It says the maker of heaven and earth. Of all things seen and unseen. They're showing the Father to be the maker. And then what do they say about Jesus? They say he's begotten and not made. And through him. All things were made. Again outside it. Now with the Holy Spirit. They're saying the same thing. They're saying he's the giver of life. Nothing that lives. Nothing that is. Has come to being without the Holy Spirit. So these These framers, these theologians of Nicaea, if you will, have gone through great lengths to show us that. Now, can I give you one little kind of trivia bit that you may be wondering about? You'll probably never use it for anything except to look intelligent at a cocktail party, dinner party, or something like that, okay? You may have noticed when we were saying this paragraph in the creed that it had it in in brackets, it said, and the son, right? Who proceeds from the father and the son. What's that about? Why is it in brackets, you know? Well, originally in the Council of Nicaea and later in Constantinople in 381, it just said, who proceeds from the Father. That's where that sentence ended. Later on, the, the church in the West began using this additional phrase that said, and the Son. And the reason their logic for it was they, they said, hey, look, if the Father and the Son have everything in common, then if the Spirit proceeds from the Father, He's also proceeding from the Son. Not a bad theological point. But the, eastern, the, the theologians in the eastern part of the church said, well, it's unnecessary, and the Father is kind of the fountainhead, and so if the, if the Son is begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father, then let's keep it that way. Now... The theological difference between East and West was not significant, but sadly the political tensions were. And so this phrase was kind of used as a reason for ripping the church apart. In the years 1054, the church East and West was split over what might be said as kind of a minor point of emphasis, but it sort of became an excuse to to tear it apart. Now, there's some other stuff built into it. Some of you leadership um, gurus would appreciate knowing that when you say proceeds from the Father and the Son, you're basically constructing a linear model of leadership, a linear hierarchy, and you're saying Father, Son, Holy Spirit. At least that's what happened in the West. This is why all of, most of us who, who grew up in the West, we've been influenced by Western thought that springs all the way back from the, the Latin, the, the Roman um, part of the church. We think of chain of command we are very comfortable thinking about hierarchical chain of command because somewhere connected to this is a way of thinking in a linear hierarchy. The Eastern Church didn't quite think that way. They, they were much more a collegial, much more plural in their leadership model. And so for them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was much more like a circle than it was a, line, a straight vertical line. Does that make sense? So this also has to do with the Bishop of Rome wanting to be in a hierarchy and the other bishops in the East saying, you don't get to be the boss of me, and on and on it goes. So now, does it does it make a significant difference? No, it doesn't. So when we say it, we kind of nod to the days of where there was one church and we say the phrase without the and the son, without the added thing. If you're especially interested in being clever at a dinner party, you should know that that phrase is called the filioque and the son. So now you know the filioque. You can just, you can strike up a conversation one evening and say, what do you think about the filioque? You know, there you go. Okay. Now, the final phrase in the second, or, or one of the, the next phrase in it says, with the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. That says everything that they needed to say to show that the Spirit is equal with the Father and the Son. The final point I want to make just about uh, this text or this paragraph is actually not from this text and paragraph, and that is that the Holy Spirit is the presence of God with us. Now, when you look at the New Testament, we've got to go to the New Testament to see this. And when you look at the way Paul talks about the Holy Spirit, it would be an amazing study to just pick up every instance that Paul talks about the Spirit and just say, in what way is Paul talking about the Spirit? Then do the same thing for the Gospels. See, in what ways does the Gospel writers do the Gospel writers talk about the Spirit? Then go to, to Acts and see how Luke finally talks about the Holy Spirit. And what you'll discover in Paul and in the Gospels and in uh, Acts is you'll see Broadly speaking, two ways of speaking about the Holy Spirit. Two not contradictory but complementary ways of speaking about the Holy Spirit. The first is as a person. The Holy Spirit is given the character and quality of a person. And if, if we were doing an in-depth study, we'd go verse by verse and show you all of it. But the the second category is that the Holy Spirit is spoken of as a power, a power. The power to actually be changed. The power to actually carry on the mission of Jesus in the world. The power to become new. The power, Paul says, to be called children of God. Person and power. So if we were adding to this, we would say the Holy Spirit is God's personal presence and the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. Now, this church is massive. This is massive because it changes everything about the way we think about the Christian life. The Christian life is not simply saying, I believe these things, I've checked these boxes, I've got the right theology about Jesus. The Christian life is about saying, The Holy Spirit is now living in me. I have come alive. I've been made new. I've been given power to become different. So, there's really two questions I want us to wrestle with this morning as we think about the Holy Spirit. And the first is this. How do we worship the Spirit? What does it mean to say we worship the Holy Spirit? He's, it's, the, the, the creed says He is worshipped and glorified. How, how? Should we write songs that say, I worship you, O Holy Spirit? We sang one about welcoming Him. I, we, we get that. But how do you worship the Holy Spirit? What does that actually mean? If you press in a little bit deeper, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for a worshiper is an overlapping word that means servant. And so a servant of Yahweh and a worshiper of Yahweh are overlapping ideas. In fact, in the, in the Hebrew mind, you might say, to worship Yahweh is to serve Yahweh. That when they spoke of worship, they weren't speaking about um, primarily about some sort of disembodied kind of thing i just worship i just feel worshipful feelings they embodied it to say to worship the lord is to serve the lord you see this in in jesus when he's responding to the temptations in the wilderness you remember this and the devil says hey jesus Bow down, I'll give you all this stuff, right? And he goes, it's mine anyway. No, he doesn't say that. He could have. But he says, no, it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy. He says, you shall worship the Lord only, him only shall you serve. This is Jesus using a phrase in Deuteronomy that employs parallelism, and the two verbs are worship and serve. They're overlapping concepts. So, now let's come back to our question. How do we worship the Holy Spirit? Could it be that to worship the Holy Spirit is to serve, to follow, to obey? You know, it's amazing. Our New Testament reading this morning was from Romans 8. If you just open your Bible and and circle every time the word spirit is there in Romans 8, and then underline the verbs right next to the spirit, you know what you'll find? You'll find verbs like, Living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, being in the Spirit, the Spirit dwelling in you, the Spirit praying for us, the Spirit interceding for us. There's all of these active verbs. When Paul speaks about the Spirit, he talks about being led by the Spirit. That's there in Romans 8. As many as are led by the Spirit are called children of God. So maybe if we put all this together, we'd say to worship the Holy Spirit is to surrender to and obey the Spirit. It's to surrender and obey the Spirit. It's to say, Lord, I'm open to you. God, I bring you glory. You're glorified in my life by this posture of humility, this posture of openness to the Spirit. But how? How, right? That's the question, isn't it? Because (laughs) we know there are at least two errors on either side of this. Two pitfalls, let's put it that way. The one is to be like, okay, I need to be led by the Spirit, so I can't make any decision unless the Holy Spirit tells me. Is it grape nuts or cornflakes? I will not move, Lord, until you speak. Why aren't you speaking? It's like, because I've taught you to make decisions, right? right? So, Sometimes when we talk to people who describe being led by the Spirit, it sounds kind of goofy. And so some of us swing to this other side and we're like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not for any of that. I'm just going to figure this stuff out and love Jesus and love people and, you know, get to heaven someday, right? That's the equal but opposite pitfall. To say, I, I don't need any openness to the Spirit. I, I'm not... I'm not uh, um, willing to think that at all that the spirit at all has an opinion about my life or my day or my decisions i'm not going to surrender any decisions to the spirit i'm just going to decide because i can decide i'd like to suggest that there are pitfalls on both sides one is to say i can't move i can't i need a word from god about everything do you know it's kind of like parenting right when your kids are little you you do give them instructions about everything this is your outfit today. <laughs> Pick it out for our three-year-old, you know. This is what you will... This, no, you will not change for the tenth time today, you know, and on and on it goes, right? But as they get older, you sort of hope that they've, their communion with their parents has taught them how to choose things that they should choose. So they'll start to make the right decisions. If they're 15 and they say... Well, maybe I do want to say what they're wearing when they're 15. I don't know. (laughs) But if they're 15, they say, Dad, should I have this for breakfast or this for breakfast? I'm hoping that you've learned some of this stuff. So there's a sense of growing up and not having to micromanage all of it. And yet, there's also the sense of saying, Lord, how can I continually be open to your Spirit? Because the Spirit is sometimes disruptive. The Spirit is sometimes... um, intervening in ways that we wouldn't have thought. I wouldn't have thought that he would say this or to do this or to go here or to say that. But wow, that turned into da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So there has to be this openness to the Spirit and yet this trust in relationship. Now, I know that saying this raises probably more questions than answers, right? So in late October, we're going to begin a series called Tuned In, and it's going to be about how to listen to the Spirit. How to listen to the Spirit through the Scripture. How to listen to the Spirit through our community. How to listen to the Spirit through the silences. Because many, many great saints have lived and gone through extended seasons of not sensing or feeling or hearing anything. What do we do with that? Okay. So we'll talk, we'll talk much more about this. But for today, it's about saying, I want to live with the posture of openness and surrender to the Spirit. I mean, could you imagine, what would it be like... If every morning you woke up and you said, Holy Spirit, lead me today. Holy Spirit, fill me today. Holy Spirit, let me see if there's opportunities or people. To just, I just want you to know, I'm open to you today. I mean, what a way to start the day. I mean, do it. Do it every day for a, a period of time. See, see what that's like. Test this. It may be clumsy. It may, it may not change anything. But I think God delights in that posture of openness to the Spirit with us. Secondly, the second question I was thinking of is how do we welcome the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to actually welcome him? To say, you're welcome here. I I want you to to lead me. I want you to speak. The phrase in the creed is he has spoken through the prophets. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? He has spoken through the prophets. When the theologians of Nicaea, when the early church theologians use this word, the prophets, they're not just thinking Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. What they're thinking of is the apostles. They're thinking of the apostles and prophets. Now this may be a bit different than what you might have thought, but Paul, in Ephesians 2, Paul talks about a great mystery that was was held, was hidden for a time. And then it says, but now has been revealed to the apostles and the prophets. He's talking about himself. And the great mystery he's talking about is what? Jesus. It's the gospel. So when they say he has spoken through the prophets, The the early Christian theologians are saying he's spoken through Paul and Luke and John and all these guys that wrote these letters in the New Testament. He's spoken in such a way that these guys have revealed Jesus. In the book of Revelation, there's a wonderful little sentence and it says this, The testimony of Jesus Christ, or Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Another way to say that is, the heart of what prophecy is all about is that Jesus is revealed. Is that Jesus is revealed. So for Paul and Matt, all these guys, they're saying, look, we are, they are considered the prophets because they have revealed Jesus. They've revealed Jesus in fullness. So that phrase in the Creed where it says, he has spoken through the prophets, that's a shorthand way of saying he's spoken through the Scripture. He's spoken through the Scripture. So I want to say two things about this. One, a little grammar thing, okay? The verb tense of he has spoken is what? Past tense. Like completed, like has spoken. As in the canon is closed. So this is kind of an important one because some of the ways that, that in, in certain parts of the church people have said, oh, yeah, I know what the Bible says. I know what Paul says. But listen, we feel that the Spirit is revealing something new to us that goes here. And you can think of what I'm talking about, right? They'll say, well, I know that Paul clearly taught about this and this and this, but we remain open to the Spirit to speak, and so the Spirit is showing us through our community here. uh, It never comes up that why only the community of Christians in North America have changed their views. Never comes up why the global south, where the majority of Christians are in the world are not hearing the Spirit, quote-unquote, speak in those ways. That never comes up, right? But there's this sense of saying, well, because we're open to the Spirit, we now believe different things about sexuality or about this or that. And it's because Paul might have said this, but it is the Spirit who is speaking, and so therefore we arrive at these conclusions. Now, this is where we have to say, well, the creed doesn't give us that option. It says he has spoken. The canon is Closed. We don't get to add to it and say, us, the Spirit, the Spirit is doing it, hallelujah. He's doing a new thing and it's called progressive sexuality. So you can't say that. He has spoken through the prophets. But here's the other thing about this phrase if we call the writers of the New Testament prophets, that means these letters are prophetic texts. Not prophetic in the sense of like, oh, they're predictive and remember all last week, all the stuff about code, we dealt with that. Not that sense but in the sense that it's still alive today. So to say that the canon is closed is not to say that the scripture is silent. It's not a silent book. It's a speaking text. It's a speaking text because the Spirit breathes through the words on this page and ignites our hearts and fills us up and says, wow, I- I've read this story a thousand times, but it spoke to me today in a different way. And you're like, I, I know that like the proper Bible study of this story You know, David and Goliath's story is really about Jesus defeating the enemy in our behalf. I get that. But somehow today, the Spirit breathed on that story and gave me the courage to face a giant in my life today. Do You see what I'm saying? The Spirit breathes and speaks through this text. The canon is closed, but the Scripture is not silent. It's not a muted text. It's alive. So to welcome the Spirit is to listen for His voice through Scripture. And I think th- there, are, there are other ways that the Spirit speaks to us without strictly saying what well, happened in my quiet time, what happened while I was reading the Bible. There's certainly other ways. But the reason I'm emphasizing Scripture so much is to say this. You cannot claim to have heard the Spirit on something that contradicts the Scripture. You can't. So it's all, these, are, these are the guardrails. Years ago, a dozen years ago or so, when I was a younger... Um, pastor working with our college ministry at New Life this wonderful young couple sort of new to faith, new to the church just precious and they came up to me and I was asking them how's their dating relationship going and they're like oh it's great You know, we're really getting to know one another and all this stuff and they said Glenn it's so great just the other night we knelt down beside the bed that was red flag number one dating couple and we just felt like the Lord said, go ahead and have sex. And I just thought, that's, that's so like innocent that it's like almost beautiful. <laughs> and I had to gently say, man, I, I just love that you're trying to pray about all of these things. But <laughs> that's probably not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> There's something else at work in your body. <laughs> When you were praying, how closed were you? You know, we got lots of questions to follow up privately, you know. So anyway, we had a nice chat about that. <laughs> you, 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 you can't hear the Spirit speaking in such a way that contradicts the Scripture. I, I was listening to a historian of the Reformation give a, a, a lecture about the English Reformers, Cranmer and others, and He was talking about Calvin as well, and Calvin had a real rich theology of the Spirit. uh, um, And he said, basically, if I were to sum up what he was summing up, I would say it this way, the Reformers believed that whatever Scripture was united to, the Spirit was invited to. Whatever the Scripture was united to, the Spirit was invited to. If you join the scripture to this, all of a sudden you're inviting the spirit into this. This is why with worship songs, if our lyrics were just all about what I came up with and what I thought or some, you know, and the, some generic person said, oh, I just love this word. I just, just what I feel in my heart. That's great. That's fine. There's room for some of that. But the power in worship songs comes when we're basically singing the truth of scripture, and then all of a sudden, he so say, whatever Scripture is united to, the Spirit is invited to. So all of a sudden, we sing a song that says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Like, why do I feel such power in that? Because you're singing the Word of God. Whatever the Scripture is united to, the Spirit is invited to. This, by the way, could be a wonderful grid for you as you think through spiritual practices. There are, there are loads of amazing spiritual practices from the Lectio to contemplative prayer, all of this stuff. And not all of them, in an obvious way, require you to meditate on Scripture. And I get that, and that's okay. But if the great majority of your spiritual practices aren't asking you to contemplate Scripture, I think that's a little bit of a flag for you. Because how sure are we that we're not sliding into something more tricky? There is, after all, a very important difference between what, say, a Buddhist means by meditation And what, say, a Christian means by meditation. A Buddhist might mean emptying yourself, and a Christian might mean pondering the Word of Christ, or the nature of Christ, or this text, or this phrase. You see what I'm saying? So again, whatever the Scripture is united to, the Spirit is invited to. To welcome the Spirit is to listen for His voice through Scripture. The reason that all of this matters is not simply some kind of intellectual exercise. We started by saying this morning the temptation with a series on the creed is to think, I just got to think the right things. Actually, the power of the gospel itself is at stake. The power of the gospel itself. If we can speak about the gospel and not actually speak about the Spirit, we're not really talking about the gospel. How many of us in this room have heard someone describe the gospel as a second chance. Don't raise your hands. But just think, have you ever heard the gospel being preached on or presented as basically a second chance? Thank God he wiped the slate clean, he washed your sins away, oh, and now you get to just try again. Actually, that is terrible news. I mean, it's awful news. It's just, it's, it's just like the worst Okay, I mean, ATN, let's pretend, okay? Like, let's pretend this is like high school algebra class, okay? I, I don't know. Were you good at algebra? You were, Okay, great. This ruins the whole example. <laughs> Who is bad at algebra? Come on. Okay, Megan. All right, thank you. Thank you, Megan. Okay, appreciate that. I, I was, yeah. Imagine high school algebra class, and the teacher says, Megan, come forward. I've got a problem on the board. I want you to work this out, and you're going to you do it in front of the whole class and solve what X is. And you're sweating, you're embarrassed, the whole class is staring at you, people are whispering, someone's making spit wads in the back of the room, and you're like up there thinking, how do I solve this? And you finish, and you know it's wrong, but you look at the teacher, and she says, yeah, Megan, I just, I got terrible news. That's wrong. And you're like, I know. And then she says, but Megan, I've got good news. And you're like, what's the good news? I'm going to wipe the board clean. You get to try again. And you're like, oh, dear God, now you're sweating. There's pit stains. It's really embarrassing. I mean, it's just a mess. It's not good news if it's just a second chance. Because if all the gospel is is forgiveness, wipe the slate clean, you're forgiven, try again, we will fail again in new and spectacular ways. The gospel must be more than a second chance. The gospel is about new life. It's about all of a sudden a power coming into Megan. and says, Oh, I know how to solve this equation. She all of a sudden becomes Matt Damon from Good Will Hunting. She can solve every equation. It's <laughs> yeah. That's something like what's happening. The, the gospel says salvation is not just forgiveness for what you've done. It's power to be made new. Power to be made new. Yes, rejoice. That's good news. That's good news. It's actually new life. New life. It's not going from bad to good, but from dead to alive. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity famously used the phrase, are we talking about being nice people or new men? If we wanted to be more gender inclusive than the 1950s, we'd say nice people or new people. And what Lewis is trying to say is the gospel is not about making you nicer. It's about making you new. All of a sudden, you're alive again. The illustration I always think of is of a mannequin. You know, like if you were to drive over to to the store, you know, let's say Express, and you look at the mannequin, you might find a mannequin with slightly better abs than me, maybe, you know. And you you might find a mannequin that fits a little bit better in a a slim stretch shirt than I do, maybe, you know, possibly. But you know what I have that the mannequin doesn't? I have life. I have breath. See, the same word for spirit is the word for breath. In the Old Testament, it's the word ruach. And it's the word when when it's talking about God in the garden, he fashions Adam from the, the dust of the ground, and he breathes breath, the ruach, the spirit, into him, and he's alive. In the New Testament, the word pneuma is the same thing. The word for spirit is the same word for breath. And so there's Jesus on the cross, breathing his last, saying, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, my very breath. And then the risen Christ, three days later, gathers his disciples and he says, receive the spirit, and he breathes on them. To be made alive means to have the very breath of breath of God in you. To live in Christ is to have the Spirit of God alive and a work in you to have the very breath of God. I loved our Old Testament reading this morning from Psalms 51, the famous confession psalm, because here's David confessing his sins, saying, wash me clean and I'll be clean. And then he says, and create in me a clean heart. But not just a clean heart. It says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Repentance and receiving the Spirit. Peter picks up on this. When Peter preaches in the book of Acts, he says, repent and receive the Holy Spirit. Those two things work together, don't they? In fact, you might even say they work together like breathing out and breathing in. Repentance. Breathing out all of my self-dependence. Breathing out all of my attempts to please God in my own. Breathing out all of the ways I have trusted in myself. And breathing in, receiving the Spirit again. See, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit not as a one-time event. When did you, you receive the Spirit at conversion? Yes, the moment you say yes to Jesus, you do receive the Spirit. But then Paul says, go on being filled. Ephesians 5, go on being filled. It's like breathing in and breathing out. Oh God, less of my strength and more of your life. Oh God, less of my resources and, and abilities and more of your breath. Amen? Would you bow your heads this morning? As the worship team comes, I want us to just have a moment where we kind of invite the Spirit to nudge our hearts and to work in our hearts. And to maybe kind of wrestle with the question and say, Lord, where, where am I? trying to live this Christian life without the Holy Spirit? How have I ignored the Spirit? How how can I begin to welcome more of the Spirit in me? How can I allow myself to be led by and walk in the Spirit? Thank you, Lord.